Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. At school, she snubbed biology in favour of physics and years later went on to win an award for discovering how microscopic tubes work inside our biological cells. This understanding of cells at the molecular level is now paving the way for new approaches to disease management and improving the lives of humans everywhere. Professor Ava Nagalis is a biophysicist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. She's a faculty member in the Division of Biochemistry, Biophysics and Structural Biology of the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology at the University of California, Berkeley, and a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator. Professor Nagalis is one of the foremost exponents of single-particle cryo-electron microscopy, cryo-M a technique that is taking the world of structural biology by storm. She recently visited the University of Melbourne to receive the 2019 Grimwade Medal and to deliver the oration titled Visualising the Molecular Dance at the Heart of Human Gene Expression. Professor Ava Nagala started her career in a time where barely any women were seen in science departments. She joins Steve Grimwade to talk about her work and to look back at her illustrious career. Professor Nagalis, welcome to Eavesdrop on Experts. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Now, before we dive into your work, I thought we'd do a refresher for those, perhaps like me, who haven't thought about biology since they were in high school. Mm -hmm. Apologies. Um, Basic Googling reminds me that cells are fundamental building blocks of our lives. They give us structure, like physically, uh, this stuff that I can slap. They convert nutrients into energy and they house and enable uh, hereditary material. Look, I've tried to summarise this, but how are our basic cells working? What are they doing? First of all, your your uh, middle school or high school is really good. You made a fantastic summary of what cells are about. Um, so, you know, I actually did not study biology during my, uh, at, at college. Just just a, a little note, I was, I was a physicist so for a while. I relied also on the biology that I learned at, at high school. But... You know, what I do, which is actually biophysics, is to use physical methods, which in my case are very powerful electron, huge electron microscopes, and then computational methods to study the fundamentals of the units of the cell. So I love the fact that you said cells are things that you can touch that are a physical entity, Um, because one of the things that I study uh, have to do with what is called the cytoskeleton of the cell. So cells like like us have a structure that gives them shape and that also serve as the the freeways where things move from one side to the other. So cells are very, very highly organized. They're fluid, but very highly organized. So part of the cytoskeleton is made of a protein that's called tubulin, and it's called tubulin because it makes microtubules. So microtubules are little tubes that are very, very small, so there's thousands of them in every cell. They're organized like a bouquet from a point that spreads from the center of the cell to the outside. And there are other proteins that are called motor proteins that use energy. The one that you were talking about, you said 
cells generate gener energy and then use it for whatever to keep alive and to form part of our tissues, our heart, our brains, our neurons. That part of the energy that they make is utilized to organize themselves, to give order. As a physicist, I know that order always requires a source of energy. Chaos doesn't require anything. You just let things go and they become chaotic. So cells are highly organized and they have this mode of proteins that move things around like in a freeway, like uh, the lorries in the freeway, moving things from one place to the other where they are needed. And microtubules define the path at which these things are going. All of this information comes from biophysical techniques that had allowed us to look inside the cell, but also extract the components that are inside the cell, put them in a test tube, and then look at them with exquisite detail. So we take microtubules out of the cell, we look at them in electron microscopes, and we get atomic detail. So we end up knowing the chemistry of how they interact with these motor proteins. What allows the motor protein to bind and then take a step and move forward? How the microtubules themselves are built? How they are broken apart? I'm a fundamental biologist. I like to understand how cells work. But every biologist always, every molecular biologist always makes a connection with human health. It's very obvious, right? So this is my connection with human health. Microtubules are a major target of anti-cancer agents. Why? Because one of the functions of microtubules, they're organizers in the cell, is that when a cell divides, the first thing that it does is it duplicates its genome, right? Because then the cell is going to split into, and each one of the daughter cells have to have the whole blueprint for a start anew and making everything again. So it's very important that the chromosomes get a split between the two daughter cells. That requires a lot of organizing them and then pulling them apart. That is done by microtubules. So if you fiddle with microtubules, if you bind something to them, a small molecule, a drug that stops the normal behavior, the cell cannot divide. What cells are dividing the, the most? In our, in our bodies and in an uncontrolled fa fashion, cancer cells. So one of the things that I study is how drugs that act on microtubules affect them, where they bind, how could we improve them, how could we maybe make them more specific. But from a very, you know, I don't do the drug development. I provide the pharmaceutical companies, the biotech, with the basic information that they can use so that they understand how the cell works, and then they can try to manipulate it to cure disease or infection or whatever, whatever it is. That's uh, what molecular biologists do and the kind of things that we're interested in, you know, understanding how the cell works at the molecular level. And this is something that has repercussions ultimately for, for disease and for making our lives better, hopefully. Listeners, uh, in next, the next episode, you'll be moving on to year two of biology in a university. <laughs> no, a, a, a fantastic summary. And this brings me to this question. You've very elegantly spoken about the way things are, and, um, and yet the work you do is incredibly visual. So I'm interested in maybe uh, what uh, cryoelectronic microscopy gives you. Like mm -hmm. It obviously gives you an image and, and a 2D, and then that can be turned into a 3D image of the microtubules. Mm -hmm. And then what does that enable? Electron microscopes have been around for a long time. They are great tools not only to study biology, also to study materials like inorganic samples. Um, it is used a lot in the computational industry because you need to check the silicon 
chips that are going to go into and the quality of the material and whether they're pure or not. And electron microscopy can give you atomic detail. The problem with imaging biological samples with an electron microscope is that when electrons go through a biological molecule like a protein or DNA, they break it to pieces. They destroy it. They make it explode. So for a long time, it was thought that biology you know, that it was not going to be possible to see biological molecules in the atomic details that you can see a silicon wafer because they will be destroyed before you gather the information. But the trick is that you can cool them down. That's the cryo part. I love this. The cooling is like to about minus 200 degrees or something. Yeah, it's very close it's to not absolute a, zero. And it's not a windy day in Melbourne. N- well, I don't know. How, I'm here in the summer, so I don't know how cold it gets. Um, you, you're close to the Antarctica. So. <laughs> but, but in any case, the trick is not only to cool them as cold as, you know, really cold, but to do it very fast. Why? So you know that proteins are super happy and DNA are, are my biological molecules in water. They're aqueous uh, molecules. And in water, the H2O molecules are very fluid and they don't have a specific arrangement. If you cool water very slowly, it makes ice. Ice is a crystal. The molecules are organized in a certain standard way and that is incompatible with the way proteins and DNA interacts with water. So the trick is you freeze the water very quickly, so quickly that the water molecules don't even have time to reorganize into the crystal. That is hundreds of thousands of degrees per second. And then you end up with this vitreous, amorphous form of water that has the structure of liquid water, but it's in a solid. It doesn't move anymore. And because it doesn't move anymore, when the electrons come, hit the protein and damage it by breaking bonds and generating radicals, bad molecules that will break all the bonds and generate like a cascade of reaction. They can't move very much because they, the water is solid, right? Because of that, you have a little window that now you can collect data that has enough signals so your images have enough electrons that have gone through the sample that they, uh, you have enough contrast if you want that those images that are two-dimensional and are still kind of noisy, like when you take a picture, the flash doesn't come out and there's not enough light in the, in the room. But we take those images of the molecules and then we have millions of copies of the molecules that we extracted from the cell and then we use computational tools, very powerful, to align those images, combine them and generate a three-dimensional representation of the molecule. That is like a, you could make a, a clay shape if you want. And these are very complicated paths that can be interpreted as the chain of the polypeptide that make a protein. And you ultimately, like in a three-dimensional puzzle, thread the polypeptide, the known sequence of the protein, the sequence of amino acid, into that three-dimensional volume. And at the end, you have a chemical representation of where every atom is in the protein, which part of the protein is going to be interacting with another, which part of the protein is going to be binding DNA and opening it and copying one strand to a messenger RNA and then another, you know, all of that information is now in that chemical representation that is a physical and chemical object. So ultimately, understanding these biological molecules at truly mechanistic level so that you could imagine in a, in a few years, we could actually make something. We understand it so well that we could engineer it or make it up ourselves. That kind of knowledge is what we want to gain. 
how long ago did this your work in this begin? And like, were you actually able to get the pictures and the images that you need now? And what was happening before? Mm-hmm. So what what has changed for the people around you who need this data, who need these tools? So the the tools that I've been using have been around. Uh, they were starting to be developed around the late 70s, early 80s. And the field was progressing very slowly. So always kind of breaking technical barriers, getting better microscopes, understanding better how to treat the images, how to prepare the freezing of the samples and all of that. And the field was growing steadily. And then something happened that was like a singularity, one technical development that revolutionized everything. And that happens about five years ago. And it has to do with the detector technology. So every time we we think of an imaging technique, maybe we think of the microscope. But at the end, you have to record the image. In the old days, in an electron microscope, we recorded the images on film. So at the end of a day at the microscope, you will go into a dark room go to the developer, the fixer, you know, all of that process. And then you will have to scan the micrograph in a digitizer so that you generate now a digital file that you can use for computer analysis. So that was tedious. There was room for a lot of human error. And typically there were a cassette of about 50 images that you could take. And then you have to get them out of the vacuum of the microscope. So we needed high throughput. Efficiency. This is, you know, this is the world we live in. So CCD cameras, which are similar to the ones that you have in your phone, in your iPhone for taking pictures, were developed for the electron microscope with a problem. Is you know, every time I talk about the electron microscope, these are electrons that are moving at close to the speed of light. They're very, very highly energetic. They destroy everything. They also destroy the detector itself. So the silicon waver. These electrons will come, they will be detected once, and then they will fry the detector. So what uh, was being done, because we wanted the digital detector to be able to get many images, not 50, but 1,000 every day that we are in the microscope. So the detector had a scintillator, a layer of glass where the electrons came. They were kind of slowed down before they hit the actual detector and the image will be recorded. In the process, these electrons were bumping around in the glass and giving us images that were very terrible. (laughs) So the wonderful microscope, all our preparation, and at the end, the detector let us down. And there was a development, there was an engineered solution for the problem of this damaging of the detector. And suddenly, we have a detector that works much better, not only gives us images that are a much better representation of the true, of what the microscope is really seeing, but they have very fast readouts. So we used to take an image. It took two seconds. You know, the, the beam shown in the, on the sample for about two seconds. They got integrated and it gave you an image. Now, this is like a video where there are, you know, hundreds of images that are recorded during the full exposure, which is as much as we can expose the sample before it still blows up because we still have to be careful. And this has many advantages because when you take a picture of someone and that person moves... What happens? That is blurred. The image is blurred, right? Mm-hmm. To get a 3D image in time, you need a movie that is stopping, you know, there's capturing one image after the other and then you play it. Yes. But if the person moves during one single frame, it's just a blur. You see yeah. nothing. So exactly, that's exactly the point. If things are moving, when we take the image, they're blurred. But if we are taking now a movie and we can split it and then we align the frames because this is motion that is not interesting. Remember, the sample is frozen. So it's not doing their movement that they will do in the cell. 
But what happens is that as, as the electrons go through this through the sample, the, the sample buckles, it kind of ripples, and then the image is blurred. But with this movie, what we can do is correct for that, that motion. Imagine my hand is moving, but I take every frame and I align it computationally, and now I have an image of my hand that has high contrast and that is not moving anymore. Long story short, these new detectors have revolutionized what we can do. So before we were limited to poor resolution, now we are able to get atomic details, visualize the position of the atoms. And furthermore, when you freeze your sample, your molecules are truly moving. So one will be like this, the other one will be in another position with the arm extended, uh, close, far away. And when they're frozen, there are many copies and each one is in a different position. And the images are so good now that we can realize that they are in different positions, separate them, and our structures describe the whole, what we call the conformational ensemble, which is a fancy way of saying we've seen the full range of motion. And that's information that is truly useful because we refer to these two proteins as molecular machines. Machines move, and when you see them moving is when you understand what they do. So this has really revolutionized how we, we look at, at biological processes, and that did not exist before. This is now exploding. I think you actually you recently said that now is a brilliant time to be doing this type of research. Actually, you may have said this a couple of years ago, potentially. Uh, you said the technique is basically exploding right now. Everybody wants to use it. So how is this being used by others? It used to be that cryem was a kind of niche technique. And, and cryem is cryoelectric. Sorry, cryem is cryoelectron microscopy. So microscopy of frozen samples. It was a very niche technique where there were a handful of people in the world that have been training a few labs scattered here and there uh, that were going along and producing papers, you know, scientific results at a certain rate. Now, many people that are interested in how biological molecular machines work are jumping into it because, as I said, now is much more informative, higher resolution, more information on motions, but also it has become easier. Okay, so as fields evolved, many aspects of the technique become automated, kind of idiot proof, if you want. So it is easier to jump into the field with what becomes shorter and shorter learning periods and start producing amazing results. Um, so now there are many laboratories across the world that are learning this technique, using facilities, regional, national facilities. These facilities are growing. You guys are having some here at, Mer at Melbourne. So these are people that were not experts of how an electron microscope works or how do you freeze a sample fast enough to be able to, to look at it in the electron microscope that now are able to do it because of how all of these techniques have evolved to be easier to use and achieve more faster in a very efficient way. When I think about um, trying to understand life, you often go either really big or really small. So you often go to the, the astrophysicist and say, how does the universe work? Um, and you know that, and that can give us an idea of um, of why we exist potentially or not. Um, mm -hmm. Likewise, I guess you can go to the very small and go, why do we exist? How is this cell mm -hmm. working? What are you finding out for yourself? And this is probably a more uh, a personal question than a mm -hmm. scientific one, or maybe it's both. Uh, what I find interesting and what what I think is my niche within this larger scale of things. I have to, can I tell you an anecdote? Please. Yeah. So. Um, 
I was being given an award when I was significantly younger. But in any case... Yeah, it, I told it, you, the listeners before, about the three pages of honours. <laughs> no, no, that's not true. You're exaggerating. But, um, you know, this was when, after my postdoctoral work, when I saw the structure of tubulin, the protein that makes these, these microtubules that I was telling you about, and I actually obtained it bound to taxol, which is the most broadly used anti-cancer drug for solid tumours. And so I was giving this award and the previous year it had been given by to Saul Perlmutter, who was the person that discovered that the universe is expanding. And it was funny because I said, you know, if the cash price that you gave was proportional to the size, Saul Perlmutter will be a millionaire and I will be giving you money back. <laughs> because, yeah, this, the things that I study are very small Um but I think it's a fascinating world because, you know, um, they're small, but they're alive. So it's not like people that are studying atoms or I'm studying things that at the microscopic level are actually very complicated. They have not three atoms or a thousand atoms. They have hundreds of thousands. And they are alive in the sense that they consume energy. They do motion. They partner. They separate. They pull. They push. They're fascinating. So I see uh, them as live entities in that sense that collectively give rise to life as we know it, as organisms, tissues, organisms, and all the processes that I study are very fundamental. So they are happening in all of our cells. They're happening in your, neur- in your neurons. They're happening in your skin, in the lining of your stomach, in, in your heart. The processes that I study are are just essential and it's just something very rewarding about you know understanding how the complexity of life starts with these small molecules that have evolved you know to do very very complicated things and keep us alive what i love about your work and i know just the, the bare surface of it is that uh you are not um reductive or singular there's not one area of study that you, that you do i think there's a lot of connections and i think about the work of the lab and i think that obviously there's theoretical science and there's your physics and there's biology but there's also technical there's literally the engineering behind the the uh the the, the microscope itself mm-hmm. and the creativity and there's there's a lot of things happening together how do you bring these ideas together or what would you consider your major strength? You know, I think the most important thing, to be honest, is to come out with an interesting question. What is it that we don't know yet? And it would be fabulous to be able to, to be able to know. And that once you frame that question and how important it will be to answer it, then you say, now, how, I, how do I go about answering it? And then you break the problem into pieces and say, how do I solve each one? What is accessible? What is available for me? At which point I have to bridge an experimental gap because no one has done this before. And, and that's the way you build, you build it up. But I think the most important thing is to come out with that question and then have the resourcefulness to look around and see how can I pull from different disciplines to be able to answer this. It's very common. I would say that the 21st century is the century of biology. I think the, tw- the 20th century, the 19th century, but there were the centuries of physics, of chemistry. Of course, physics, physicists and chemists will argue with me, but I, I honestly think it is the case. But what is happening is that the problems that we're facing are so difficult that people are being drawn into biology from many different disciplines. So there are many chemists that are doing what is called chemical biology to probe biology, to answer questions 
but using very clever chemical tricks. And of course, physicists like me are coming in with techniques like electron microscopy to be able to visualize these molecules. Engineers are pulling in to solve those technical problems like the detector that needed to be solved. So you need all of this expertise to be able to tackle the most fundamental problems. And you know, I think that's something that is very interesting about how science is done. It's done by teams, it's done by using expertise and knowledge and experience from very many, especially when you are asking the most difficult questions that are going to give you really interesting answers. Right? Impossible question to answer, but what remain, well, what's the next biggest mystery? Oh, my God. Um, you know, I would say it's not my field. Um, I mean, there will be components maybe that trickle down to the kind of molecular details that, that I deal with. But if I had to start over right now, I think it would be system neurobiology, someone that wants to understand memory, consciousness, learning, behavior, but want to understand it in a rigorous way that ultimately come down to neuronal connections and molecules at, the, at synapses and things like that. How does this very complicated behavior, these complicated properties that have to do with the way we think, how they they come out at the basic principle from molecules and cells that are in, in our brain. I think that's a fascinating thing. And we are not even in a square one right now, but super exciting. For you being a Spanish woman, mm-hmm. um, I'm guessing that you have decided that you are open to traveling the world to fulfill your work and your dreams. Do you have to be mobile to succeed? Mm. I think is you know, if you have more possibilities to choose, that's always a plus. I don't think that you have to be constantly moving to to achieve your goals. And people do sometimes very, very good work without having to move around. Um, I just think that when it comes to, you know, science, you want to have as many doors opened as, as possible. Uh, but I don't think there is a set of rules of what it is that you have to do to, to become successful. Um, you know, I'm from Spain. In Spain, people don't move, really. I mean, mm. you live with your parents through college, graduate school, if you do that, and, and until you married and you buy a house two streets down. And you, you go to the university that's closest to where you live. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's, like, that's a rule. The only reason why you... That's would, a rule rule. That's not a uh, social rule. It's a pretty rule. Uh, it's, it's very much a rule. So... I think you you have the things may have changed since since I'm not there, which has been a while. But the, unless you know you want to study something that is not offered in this at the university that you're in, and then you move to the next university in your city, right? Um, so there are exceptions to that, but that is very typical. It's part of the I would say Southern European style that families stay very close, and as, and because of that, your college, your work, your jobs. Uh, they tend to be very classed. So I'm, I'm actually the black sheep in my in my family because I left. You know, I left after my undergraduate degree. I went to the UK uh, for my PhD. Had a very hard time with food there. So I moved to California where the food is exceptionally good for my postdoc and much better weather. So I moved in a way just because of the opportunities that opened to me at any given time. I'm interested. Your, I mean, your story is, seems to be one from the future because um, reading your background, I think you were inspired by three uh, teachers you had, oh, er, yeah. three female teachers, I think, in maths, physics and biology, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All, all women in, in, and leaders in their field. 
and here you are a leader in your field. Do you, is there any problem in, in getting women into STEM? There is. I mean, and this is, um, this is a very well-known uh, issue that, you know, is getting better with time, but very remarkably slowly. So there are certain areas where it is very hard to get women. And I just, I don't understand why. Um, you know, I remember my kids, I have two boys and now they're, they're more grown up. But I remember from day one going to daycare, kids that were two, and this happens all the way until they're 18, you, you go into the daycare center and the girls are sitting down and making beautiful drawings so organized and this and the boys are on the floor hitting their heads and and you say how can it end, end up being the way it is but somehow there is this idea that women are good at social sciences literature medical things and Guy, the, you know, the guys are good at math and engineering and physics. It's and just, hitting their heads on the floor. And hitting their heads on the floor. And, um, you know, so, so for some reason, uh, something happens. Um, I was very fortunate because I had these three role models during my high school. But I have to tell you, I decided to go to physics, to study physics. There wasn't a single female faculty in my department. None. Uh, it was a time of change. So in my class, we were already maybe uh, maybe a third, maybe a little bit less than a third uh, of the students were women. But in the faculty, there was no one. Mm. And at the gradual level, there was one. Um, so it was very hard to find um, role models. It, biology is interesting. It's kind of intermediate. It, even, even within biology, it's different areas. So the, the cell biology, neurobiology, there's more women. If you go into biophysics, something that is seen more as the hard sciences, more math, more computation, there's fewer. Mm. Um, so I don't know why this is about to change. There's obviously many cases of extremely successful women, mathematicians, engineers, you know, pilots, whatever, you know, things that are not traditionally have been seen as, as, as women jobs and roles that slowly we will conquer. And this is a process where having more role models, more people that you can see and identify, look, I look like her and she is doing this thing that are motivational and that will eventually get to a situation that is more equal. Speaking of motivation, what's uh, something you would tell uh, your students? Uh, what's one bit of advice you'd pass on? Hmm. God, uh, one. Uh, Move to California for the food? There's, okay, give me a second one. Right, um, right, right. No, so, you know, I, I always tell them this, that they have to, you know, to be a scientist, you have to love the question, but you also, you have to love the path to answering this question. And this is very tough because, you know, by definition, this is something that I, you know, one of my colleagues at Berkeley, Carlos Bustamante, just articulated very, very well. So I don't know whether I'm going to be able to do this this as well as him. But if you're a scientist, you're breaking ground all the time. You're always doing an experiment that no one has done before. There is a very high likelihood that it's not going to work the first time, the second, even the third. So you are constantly battling and facing your own limitations, and you have to have some kind of inner strength and confidence in what in that what you're doing is first important and second you will be able to do it if you persist. But you're always feeling that level of incompetence that have to do with breaking new ground. And this doesn't happen with other professions where you you learn the rules and you just go do it. Uh, 
the life of the scientist is different every day. And most of the time, you're just failing and learning for your failure. And then you succeed and it's hooray, right? So that's the most important thing is you have to have the motivation to keep going because I can assure you, you're going to fail. If you're doing anything that is interesting, there's going to be a lot of failure before you succeed. So that's one thing that I tell them. Have you ever run out into the streets and thrown your papers in the air and yelled Eureka? Uh, I don't know. if <laughs> I may have done it in an office in front of a computer. You know? I think I watched a really bad movie recently. Yeah, yeah. So I, rep- I okay. do not like the way scientists are portrayed by Hollywood and you know other movie industries. I, 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 have love, a... I love those explosions in space. <laughs> They're right. amazing. It sounds so great. Um, look, finally, um, next time I'm scratching myself and I'm trying to picture the, the microscopic world beneath my skin... What do you want me to think about? Oh, I want you to think about these these entities that are all the way down to this microscopic level that are working very hard for you to repair your skin, to (laughs) to build up, you know, to move around cells that cover cover them, but that at the atomic level are, are these little. I don't know, not automatons, but uh, moving an uh, organism, consuming energy that they get from 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 the hamburger you you had earlier in the day, to do that work, to keep you alive, to keep you regenerating and and breathing and and walking around. Professor Eva Nagalas, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you to Ava Nagalas, biophysicist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, University of California, Berkeley. And thanks to our reporter, Steve Grimwade. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on February 14, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. Don't forget to drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.